what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. This podcast is sponsored by Jackson Creative, a custom communication agency located in downtown Hickory, North Carolina, specializing in online content creation. To learn more, visit thejacksoncreative.com. Jackson Creative, we tell your story. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Forecast on the Mesh Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alan Burton, Director of Instruction for the Alan Burton Golf Academy at Lake Hickory Country Club in beautiful Hickory, North Carolina. Be sure to check out all the other shows on themesh.tv, all produced here in Western North Carolina. We are your connection to the who's who in the game of golf. We will make you think, make you laugh, and grow your golf IQ. I'd like to thank all my listeners for tuning in. Find us on themesh.tv or any other favorite podcast platform that you choose, such as Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iHeartRadio, and Google Play. Uh, On today's episode, I am blessed to be joined by one of my great friends, a phenomenal golf instructor, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Smith. Jeff is out in Las Vegas, Nevada uh, at TPC Summerlin and teaches the game of golf to some of the greatest players in the game, some PGA Tour players, some Web.com players, um, a lot of college golfers, uh, Canadian Tour players out there on the McKenzie Tour, just players all over the world. And, Jeff, you travel about as much as anyone in the business. I'm so glad you took a few minutes out of your day to be with us. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Good to see you, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Alan. Well, I know you were just in Miami. You said you were down there at a, at a wedding. Patrick Rogers, I understand, got married, and you were down there to witness the whole event, said it was a spectacular thing. And, and you also had a, a birthday. What is it, 20 how many? <laughs> yeah, just turned 45, so I'm, uh, 45. I'm, I'm getting old. Yeah, man, aren't we all? Thank goodness it beats the alternative, as they say, to, you know, to keep going and, and working on uh, our dreams. Um, so you, how long have you been a golf instructor, man? It goes way back for you, I would imagine. Tell us a little about how you got into the sport as a golf instructor. Yeah, you know, I, I've told the story a few times. It was, you know, my entry into golf instruction was uh, a little bit delayed. I, I took a few other career paths coming out of college. Um, I went to, as soon as I got out of college, I kind of started in golf. I moved from Tennessee where I grew up out to uh, Southern California. And um, I got my first start in golf, really in the retail sector. Um, and then from there, it led to, you know, into coaching or kind of, I shouldn't even say coaching, starting at the bottom. I moved out to Palm Springs and I started out at um, PGA West and started working outside services and cleaning clubs and parking cars and, yep. you know, setting up the range, all that fun, uh, good stuff. And, um, you know, moving to Palm Springs, the goal was to really get into golf because for me, it was kind of like the Mecca. There were so many good golf courses out there. There were so many good players out there. And that's what drew me to that part of the country. And I figured out really quick, I didn't know it, that golf was very seasonal there. So, you know, everybody comes in there in the wintertime and you're busy and you got plenty of lessons and Yep. So on and so forth. And then everybody leaves. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I found myself in the summer times kind of going broke and, you know, not having enough. Uh, you know, I was just starting a family at that time. I've been married for a couple of years and me and my wife were expecting our first child. And so, you know, I, I just threw my, my resume out there on monster.com and I got contacted by a bunch of retailers and mm-hmm. 
was weird. I never really saw myself, you know, growing up playing sports, getting into retail or that or kind of business. And, you know, they just came at me with a bunch of money. And I was like, wow, you're really going to pay me this much money. And I'm fresh out of college mm-hmm. and uh, to, to run a retail store. So I went to work for Target. Oh, wow. And, uh, not, even yeah. go- not even golf retail. At, at Completely first. out of golf. Yeah. You know, yeah. this was in this was in 2000. So, you know, I, I grew up playing the game, grew up playing in high school, you know, junior golf. And when I went to college, it was kind of the end of my, you know, end of my golf. It was more like just go to school. Um, that's when the, the golf instruction bug kind of hit me, though. That's when I really started to look at things and you know, I was reading all the books, buying every coach's DVDs, um, going right. to take lessons from various coaches. It was more of like the college was more of the, the, the research time for me. It was more I was looking for more answers. I was looking for more, you know, you know, more detail in what was actually happening. And, and you know, granted, back then, there's no track man at this time. There's no, right. you know, there's no high speed cameras. A lot of the technology didn't exist. So we were learning from books and tv broadcasts and golf digest and yep. you know just being around good players at the time so you know fast forward i left golf went into retail and did it for a number of years and was actually very good at it i moved up very quickly in the company uh ran multiple high volume stores for target and then realized wow i'm completely miserable i'm making a lot of money but um I don't love this. I can't do this for the next 20 years of my life. And then that's when I made decisions to kind of get back into golf. So I basically moved to Las Vegas where I knew was there was another opportunity to coach. Uh, a friend of mine was kind of opening an indoor academy. And that, that was where I first got my first start at teaching. And, you know, that for things for me really kind of took off in about 2009, 2010, got a hold of a track man, really started to understand ball flight on a higher level, kind of digging into, you know, all of, you know, all the technical aspects of, of golf instruction, if you will. And, you know, from there, it just kind of, you know, I would say I was kind of in the right place at the right time because boom, social media came about. Mm -hmm. I was able to start creating content and putting it out there for people to see Uh, that attracted more and more players as they were seeing these things on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and then, you know, from there, I just I made a huge investment in college players, um, getting mm-hmm. players to high from high school to the co- to the college level. And then from there out into the professional ranks. So I've been fortunate enough to work with kids and, and, and see them go from high school all the way to, the P- to winning on the PGA Tour. So um, that was kind of my roadmap. And, you know, I would say that my rate of success was very unrealistic. Um, as in it takes a lot of luck to do kind of what I've done to go from basically someone that nobody knows anything about in the game of golf to, you know, working, you know, with the best players in the world on a, on a, on a regular basis. So I think being in the right place at the right time, I think, uh, from about 2011 to about, I mean, even today, I really immerse myself in reaching out and trying to build a network of resources um, that I could rely upon that I could continue to extract information, continue to extract theories, and then, you know, do my own little uh, investigative, you know, trial and error, if you will. And that's really kind of shaped the, 
the philosophy, the, the philosophy that I have in the golf swing today, or the understanding of how to play the game today. And, and it was a little bit, you know, it was a little bit different than I would say most instructors, probably the path they probably went down. I, I really looked away from going to other uh, coaches and I started to spend a lot of time with people who really had no skin in the game, if you will, people who didn't have an agenda on how you should swing the club. Um, Chiropractors, physios, biomechanists, people who really weren't, you know, even immersed in golf, but they understood movement and motion and, and force production and things of that nature. And I think, you know, that's probably been the last five or six years mm-hmm. of my teaching career where I, where I've grown the most and I've, you know, I've really kind of changed some things that I teach. And, and I think I've had a lot quicker success rate because of those, you know, those people being willing to share that information with me. Oh, absolutely. I think our industry has, um, grown so much in so many different directions. We're no longer teaching the seams as ifs uh, that we used to think were, you know, the standards of the game, you know, as they're called fundamentals. And so oftentimes we see players at the highest level who do not really demonstrate any real consistency of their fundamentals other than the fact that every player has some form of attachment to the club. You know, it might Mm -hmm. be a variety of ways they do that. You know, so can you call the grip – a fundamental, you know, it certainly has a has a, a functionality to it, and the relationship is made to the club face, so to speak. But yeah, you look at you're an early adapter of technology like TrackMan has has led you down a rabbit hole, so to speak, to understand what's really happening at that collision moment. And and I think that's kind of where the industry's gone. Uh, tell us a little bit about those first couple of years there looking at TrackMan numbers and deciphering what was happening there. What was the big revelation for you at that moment in your career? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think around 2000 and, you know, 10, 2011, maybe even a little early, nine, 10, 11, somewhere in that ballpark. When I got my first hands, hands on my first TrackMan, you know, I was, I was teaching at an indoor facility with Joe Mayo, who you know very, very well. Oh yeah. And Joe and I were literally, at this point, hitting a t- hitting balls, giving lessons on track, man, and really kind of figuring things out together at that point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Joe is really good in front of a camera. And I was like, hey, you, you got to turn the camera on, man, and start sharing some of this stuff with the world, the this, this stuff that we're figuring out. And, and you know, there was people out there that were figuring it out at the same time. You know, there were right. there's guys out there, you know, like John Graham talking about the D plane and, I mean, a lot, you know, James Lights and, and Brian Manzella, there was a lot of uh, really smart guys that were kind of, we were all kind of figuring this out together. And there was a race, though. <laughs> there was a race to who can take this technical information and change the numbers, mm-hmm. right? We can all measure somebody who's swinging six down and seven left with their seven iron, slicing it off the range. <laughs> but the race is how do you change those numbers? And for me, I, I credit the indoor facility that I was working at, at the time um, for, for giving me that that gift of being able to problem solve that because working indoors in Las Vegas when it's 110 degrees outside, people was, were were just flocking to this indoor facility to hit balls because it's air conditioned and it's right. great. Right. Crack man, I can see all this data and ball flight and stuff. And I would say I would go on the record, Alan, and say that. From 2013 
2015, I taught more lessons on TrackMan than anyone in the world. I wouldn't doubt and that at all. The reason why I say that is because I was literally teaching 11 to 12 lessons per day. Mm-hmm. Like it was a volume and a pace that was backbreaking and it was hard for me to keep up with. But I was so fascinated at that time with like, wait a minute, all these people for years have been coming to me slicing. And now when I explain them simple concepts of club face and club path delivery, <laughs> I can change their ball flight in 30 minutes. Yeah. You're changing and lives. <laughs> they were excited. I mean, they were like, wow. And so, you know, for, for me, it was a lot of trial and error during lessons. Okay. I try to do this, boom, boom, boom. And here's what it produced. So I, sure. I figured out really quickly, if I could understand the collision between the club and the ball, and I could explain that to people in a way with which they could understand, then I could kind of reverse engineer a golf swing to alter those impact alignments. Oh, sure. And there's a lot of different ways to do it, right? You can you can look at the best players in the world and every single week like I do on the PGA Tour, and you see a bunch of different-looking golf swings. Right. Uh, bottom line is they're all controlling their ball flight with a lot of predictability, and um, it, it, it all comes back to that, that collision. And so – that was the starting point for me to kind of answer your question was really understanding impact, really understanding what was going on. And, um, you know, I took a lot of golf lessons growing up and most of those lessons were contradictory to that information that I was learning in, you know, in oh, 2009, yeah. 2010. Right. I think that's kind of the mistake that a lot of golfers have made is they've gotten, they've gotten into the lesson game and they've been given some information that was maybe, not accurate and certainly sent them down some bad roads. So it's given the golf instruction world kind of a bad rap, hasn't it? We're, we're just pulling our way out of that as instructors and, and trying to get beyond that uh, with our yeah, students. There's, there's no question. And, and I've, listen, I've given bad golf lessons. We mm-hmm. all have, you know. Um, and the key is, is learning, you know, right. just continuous learning, challenging yourself every day. So like for the, there was a time there where, I, one of the exercises I did was I set up a camera on my lesson tee and I filmed my lessons. Mm-hmm. It wasn't to share with the player. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. going to send it to them later. I, I just went home at night and I popped on the video and I started watching myself teach. And I was yeah. just ultra critical of myself. I was like, wow, that was stupid. Why did I say that? That guy didn't understand anything I was saying. And so <laughs> I just gave myself, I gave myself a ton of critical feedback in the beginning. And it, it taught me to like, what, I just kind of figured out really early, like watching myself in third person give a lesson. And it seemed like the goal at that time wasn't to fix that player. The goal was for me to explain to that player how smart I was. Right. Right. Now I'm using all this technical information and they're eating it up because they've never seen anything like that before, but they're, they're not getting any better at golf. Yeah. But they feel a lot smarter. Right. And so they felt comfortable with you there. You know, hey, this guy's a lot smarter than I am. He's going to help. Yeah, they're me. like, wow, man, he's using all these big fancy words like angle of attack, club path, blah, blah, blah. And, and so just sitting back reflecting, watching myself teach, I was going, wow, that was terrible. Like you could have gotten <laughs> that point across in 10 minutes. Right. And with you a half an hour. So I think that critical self analysis is, is, is one of the biggest ways to get better at teaching. Um, I, I think it's really easy for us to criticize others, watch other people teach and go, oh, I wouldn't have done that or I wouldn't have gone that route. Mm-hmm. But when you do it yourself, it's a lot more productive, oh, yeah. you know, because you get better. 
That's exactly right. I think we're we're out there every day, as you said. We're learners. Uh, to be a to be a good coach, a good teacher, I think that's one of the first things you have to be is a um, an insatiable learner. Uh, you learn from so many things, don't you? Your experiences, you learn from evaluating yourself, having videotaped your own lessons with players. You learn from, as you said, early on through books. Um, it's just never ending. Uh, I think I've been to, I don't know, probably in the last three years, I've probably been to nine different seminars. You know, maybe twelve. You know, just and you pay money. Do you go here? Like I've heard you present uh, at Andrew Rice's coach camp before, and I'll, I'll if I hear about any particular opportunity for me to learn, I'm always interested. Always going yeah. to hear what people have to say and and what they have to share. So. I think that's what makes a good coach is somebody who's never, never of the mindset that they have all the answers or know everything. So. No doubt. Um, so tell us a little bit about where you are today. I know you're working with, uh, as you mentioned, Aaron Wise, and um, I think you're having a really good year with one of your players. Uh, Scott Piercy is having a fantastic year, a lot of top tens. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the things. You know, you don't, don't necessarily have to give us all the details specifically, but – What's a day like in your world when you show up at a tour event and you've got two players in the field? Tell us about your day. What, how early do you start and, and what's your, on your agenda that day? Yeah, you know, I'm a little bit fortunate. So I have three guys on tour, uh, Aaron, Scott Piercy, and Patrick Rogers. And two of those three, I'm fortunate that they live in Las Vegas with me. So um, with those guys, my routine's a little bit different. We try to do a lot of the technical work at home. Um, so that my weeks with them are more, uh, weeks on tour are more routine based. So we've got basically practice protocols that we have in place. So it really depends on the travel schedule and like how many in a row they're playing. But, you know, so we've got kind of two formats, a format of coming off of a week off, they'll generally get to a tournament site on Monday. And so a Monday is a very technical day for my players. And, uh, so when I say technical, I'm talking about whatever we're working on in their game, whether it's full swing, short game related or putting, we're doing all of our technical drills. We're doing all of our uh, movement stuff, um, really kind of digging in there and, 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 and trying to ingrain things that we're going to fall back on later on in the week. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Tuesday is more is, is shifting a little bit from technical to more field based stuff. So we're probably going to do things like, you know, run through track man combines at the tournament site to see how far the ball's flying, the dial and distance control, things of that nature. We're going to do all of our putting drills, our speed work, getting acclimated to the greens. And then we're typically going to play nine holes. So I'll spend that time with them on the golf course. Well, we're, we're talking through strategy on the course, you know, what the course conditions are like, um, you know, lines off tees, where we can miss it, so on and so forth. Um, and, and with three players on a tour, you ask what my day looks like. It generally is 7 a.m. to probably 5 or 6 p.m. It's it's a 10 or 11-hour day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of a tour event. Uh, Wednesday's generally the biggest drain on you because it's, it's pro-am day. So you're looking at, you know, they're all three guys, if they're in the field, are playing five-and-a-half-hour pro-ams, which is miserable. <laughs> but I'll generally walk those, you know, I'll walk with nine with each of them to kind of see, you know, the things that we've worked on throughout the week, how is it translating into playing? Because we treat those pro-ams, you know, kind of as a, this is a trial run for how we're going to compete tomorrow. Sure. 
So we, we, the goal was to obviously start very technical on Monday and then kind of progressively throughout the week, move away from technique and more in the field base because, you know, once the, once the bell goes off on Thursday, you're going to fall back on what you've got, what, what your training was like. And I will generally stay a, a normal PGA tour event. I'll stay through Thursday. I'll walk and watch them play. I like to, I'm big on seeing the guys play and compete because I, it gives me, you know, it gives me, in, you know, firepower for when I, when we're working on technique and I can say, no, you know, last week you were tilting back, dragging the handle and we were blocking that driver to the right. You know, you did it on holes two, four, whatever, seven. So I, right. I can, I can, I can make an attachment of what we're working on to how they're competing. And, and it's, it's an unbiased opinion because I'm actually seeing them hit the shots. I'm seeing them, you know, I'm seeing them do that under the gun and under pressure. And I think that's one of the more valuable ways to evaluate a player because on the range, they're all stripe shows. Okay. And then you know, in the practice rounds with no pressure, they're stripe shows. And you know, <laughs> when the, when the gun goes off and, you know, uh, on Thursday in time to compete, it's, it's a little different. So that's, I'll try to, I'll, I'll stay through Thursday. And then if there's any adjustments we want to make after that first round, we do a little more swing work or putting work or whatever. And then I try to get out of there. Yeah. I, I want to be, you know, kind of out of their way come the weekend where they're just folks locked in and competing. Um, some events I'll stay throughout the week, like a major, if I go to Augusta or PGA, I'll, I'll generally stay all seven days. Cause there's, there seems to be, uh, you know, player, the, the tension is a little higher and players are a little more nervous. And sometimes as a coach, they don't need more technical information. They just need a calming influence around them. Mm-hmm. They need a familiar face. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they need, just general discussion and dialogue. It kind of takes their mind off of the competition. And so you, you provide that a little bit as a coach, you know, during the week, but it's long days, it's 10, 11 hour days. Um, and it's tricky when you get three players all in the field, the same, same tournament. Yeah. Do you feel like the guys that you're currently working with are all similar in their approach to the game? Are they uh, all very unique and you have to adapt your teaching style differently to the three you're dealing with? Yeah, there's no question. They're all different. Um, I, I've got three guys that probably couldn't be more different. Um, Aaron is a bit of a technician. Mm-hmm. Everything's very, very structured, very, very organized. Um, drills are all the same. Um, feels and feedback technology, you know, very integrated into what he does. So, I mean, you know, he's he's got a Sam Putlab out there on a Tuesday at the PGA Championship dialing in a stroke. He's got – you know, it, he's, he's very regimented that way. Uh, practices a lot, puts in a lot of, you know, ball count during the week so that he's kind of peaking toward the end of the week. Um, and then a guy like Scott Pierce, he's the complete opposite. Um, he's probably the most naturally talented golfer I've ever worked with. He can fall out of the bed and absolutely stripe it. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't, um, his game doesn't require as much maintenance, as much ball hitting. He doesn't need to spend three hours on the range. Um, for him, it's just getting him comfortable, uh, really getting him comfortable on the greens. Uh, and when he does that, he's, he's, he's tough. He's really, really tough. And so, and, and, and Patrick's probably a blend of those two guys. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a bit of a te- te- technician in terms of his routine and structure. Mm-hmm. Very, very simple but he's, he, he sticks to it really, really well. Um, doesn't hit a lot of balls, doesn't put up big ball count numbers. He likes to go out and play. So instead of spending a Tuesday on the range at a tournament, 
banging balls for four hours, he'll go, let's go play 18. Mm-hmm. And he'll, he'll play a birdie game or a money game. So he likes to compete to get into shape. And, and Aaron likes to grind on the range to get into competitive mode. So, yeah, they're all, they're all three different. And uh, I think that's the tricky part of coaching is being able to, you know, they're obviously all swinging the club according to my philosophical approach of how it should be swung within the confinements of their own artistic approach to that. Right. Right. But if you look at their swings, they don't look anything alike. Right. They, they all could be, couldn't be more different. And, but yet the same, you know, mechanical principles are kind of governing, governing all three of those movements. Yeah. Let, let's talk about some of those mechanical principles. I think, um, golfers uh, in the in the industry right now are probably a little misguided if they haven't been able to spend time with someone like yourself on the lesson tee to understand a few of these principles we we don't we don't necessarily see the same golf swing uh, from player to player at the highest level of the game and there's obviously a reason why each golfer swings the club the way they do you have they all have their own swing signature, if you will. I mean, you look at Jim Furyk as an example of this on the extreme or Bubba Watson, and they have their very unique motions. But I think Jim Furyk's made $80 million in the game of golf, so there's something going on there, right? There's some, yeah. there's some functionality to that uh, club movement, and we want to understand what those things are. So give some nuggets to the listeners. What are we looking for when we're trying to get our golf swing to function um, what are some of your, your major pieces there? I, I know a few of them, but I want you to share those in your own words with our listeners. Yeah, I mean, without getting too technical here, I would say that when you look at the best players or the, the players who control their golf ball the best, at, at the end of the day, they've put some a few matchups together in their swing. And when I say matchups, it's a combination of physiological movement. It's, it's how can they rotate, bend, and turn based on their physical build, their level of flexibility, their coordination, their strength. And then um, at the end of the day, they, they have found a way to create a functional club face to club path relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that sounds like, wow, very broad. And it is. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's a very broad concept. But at, at the end of the day, there's a lot of different ways to do it. The things that don't change from swing to swing are the fact that that club doesn't move by accident. It moves because you are holding on to it on the handle and you are applying a force to that grip that is causing that club to move. And when you understand those forces mm-hmm. and the torques that are going to be created by the direction and magnitude of those forces, then creating that functional club face and club path doesn't seem so daunting or so unrealistic or, or repeatable anymore. Right. And so with each player, you're, you're basically trying to solve a couple of different problems. And, and every player isn't trying to solve the same problem. Some guys are trying to hit it further. Mm-hmm. So the things, the movement patterns that they need to create are going to be this X. Mm-hmm. And then some guys are trying to hit it more consistently. Their contact isn't good enough. And then some guys are trying to control the curvature of their golf ball, which means the the direction of the path and, and, and the orientation of the club base. So, you know, it, for me to break each of those things down, we'd be here for hours and hours and hours. But just to kind of summarize it or keep it simple, you know, starting with physiological things, how well can the athlete in front of you move, turn, rotate, bend, tilt, okay? That's going to largely determine the, the types of forces that they put on the grip. 
uh, how they put forces into that grip is going to cause how the center of mass of that club moves and rotates around their body, how fast the club achieves speed and how, how, you know, it's not the correct term, but I use it with players because they understand it and, and it's how stable the club base is. Mm-hmm. You know, do they have a matchup in their swing that's requiring a lot of rotation of that club base or do they have a, a movement pattern in their swing that's that's causing them no conscious effort to, to square the club base. And right. that's a little bit unscientific, but that's one of the ways that I've been able to get these points across to players is taking these, you know, these concepts and kind of dumbing them down, if you will, to where players can understand them. That, that is the key as an instructor. You know, we kind of study it from a scientific point of view and some of these incredible minds in the game have brought us the science and that's our job as golf instructors, I think, is to help each player to accomplish these physical forces and torques they're applying to the club, but with simple terminology so they can understand what they're trying to do. My dad yeah. is a wise guy. He's 83 years old, still plays golf a couple times a week. And I've taken a lot of what my dad says because they're simple phrases. And he said, son, you can't do better until you know better. And I think yeah, that's no, a great statement, you know, because golfers are trying to do things that they shouldn't be trying to do. They're trying to put force across the shaft and shove that handle down into the ground because they've been told to hit down on the ball and they're playing it back in their stance and leaning that handle forward when they're trying to hit a chip shot and all they're doing is making that golf club turn into a shovel. And if you yeah. could just get them to understand, hey, look, we don't want to put that force on the club this way. Have you ever thought about pulling on the grip? You know, and, and you know that changes what the club is going to do in a more appropriate way, and they can shallow out, and they can hit more solid shots, more forgiveness. Yeah, and, and there's no question about it. And, you know, what the breakdown in, in, in the golf instruction world is it's when, it's when an amateur golfer who's swinging, a, you know, a 7-iron 75 to 80 miles an hour is looking at videos of Ben Hogan who looks like he's <laughs> lagging out of it right. and leaning staff forward at impact they're thinking to themselves well he was a great ball striker i need to take my 75 mile an hour club head speed and go out there and do that yeah and, and hit it 100 and, yards <laughs> i mean the whole thing is blown up right there like oh, yeah. right. okay if you were swinging a hundred mile an hour seven iron we may be able to do something more like what hogan's doing leaning leaning that shaft and beating down on that ground but right. you're not doing that so most, you know, most of our clients and, and most amateur golfers in the world are, are, are doing that, doing it backwards. Right, right. Their, their concept is backwards. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. So that, that's the fun in the game and is taking this scientific research from these incredibly sharp, um, you know, folks in our industry now and just taking that knowledge and helping golfers. I mean, we're seeing, I'm seeing most of my players now. Uh, look at me like I have three heads when I share these new concepts. I've never heard that. I've never heard yeah. do that versus this. And, you know, it sounds blasphemous to them to say, look, I'm not concerned with where your feet are right now. Let's let's understand this. You, the, the ball doesn't know you have feet. We'll get to feet in a minute because there's a relationship the feet have to what you're yeah. going to be able to do in terms of rotation, balance, and force that you're applying to the ground. And we're going to talk about that, but let's talk about this first. Let's get your, your mind aware of a low point concept or a face to path relationship. And then we'll branch out from there as your knowledge grows. But yeah. Yeah. And and it's, it's all in the, you know, depending on your skill level, you know, most guys that come to me, you know, honestly, this day and age, I, I haven't taught, I don't teach many high handicappers anymore. Mm -hmm. And 
it's not because I choose to not do that. It's because I know that it's a requirement of time that I can't give them. So if I'm taking on a brand new player who's starting from scratch and hasn't played much golf, I enjoy those lessons as much as any because I feel like I can take them from A to Z really fast. Mm-hmm. Like if a hundred shooter comes to me, I think in a matter of weeks I can have them in the nineties. Sure. And as the player gets better and better and better, those gains obviously, as you know, become harder and harder to find. Right. And you know, the, the things that you're working on or how you're going to structure those lessons are, are going to be different for a guy that's shooting a hundred, a guy shooting 90, a guy that's shooting 80 or a guy that's trying to break 70 consistently. So it's, it, you got to be able to tailor all those different messages to those different levels of players. Absolutely. So let's talk putting for a minute. I know you've spent a lot of time with your players on the putting green. You're looking at Sam putt lab data and stroke mechanics. How many of your players on the PGA Tour that you're currently working with would you say have absolute model uh, movement of their putter uh, when they're putting their best? (laughs) Well, I would start with, first of all, I don't think there is a such thing as a model in putting. Um, And the reason why is I've I've measured over 100 PGA Tour players on my Sam Putt Lab. So I got a pretty large database. Yep. And I've got movement patterns that, when you look at their Sam putt lab data, you can't tell if they're a 15 handicap or the best putter in the world. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. Brian Gay is a really close friend of mine and, and I've worked on and off Brian for seven or eight years now. And uh, I've measured Brian a number of times on the, on the Sam putt lab. Brian is probably has the worst Sam putt lab data of any professional player I've ever measured. <laughs> and this guy is a perennially top 10 player putter in the world every single year on the PGA tour for 15 straight years. Right. I think he's ranked 11th right now in strokes game putting. <laughs> and why is that the case? Well, Brian aims his putter four degrees to the right. <laughs> and he thinks he's aiming dead square. Right. Before he takes the putter back, he starts bouncing it on the ground. And through the process of bouncing it on the ground, the face actually works more towards square. <laughs> but that's how he triggers his backswing. He takes the putter back straight back. He makes a little loop at the end of his backstroke where it shifts out across line. And he comes across his putts. His path is three degrees left with a basically square club face. Now, if I showed his Sam Putt Lab data to most players, they'd be like, well, this guy can't break 80. <laughs> he's one of the absolute best putters that's ever lived. Sure. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the thing is understanding patterns, you know, putting for me, it's all pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. And to do that, I have to watch them play. I have to watch them compete. I have to watch them do their drills because, and I have to measure them in different environments. So one of the things I'll do with the Sam putt lab is with every player that I measure, I'll measure them on a straight, I'll measure them on a right to left and a left to right. Right. And I'll look at those stroke patterns and say, okay, here's what they're doing when they're faced with this visual perception of the hole or this visual perception of the break or the target. And I'll start, you know, basically just start peeling back the layers there and look for the underlying patterns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I found is, you know, golfers who, golfers who achieve, you know, playing at higher levels, PGA Tour, co- good college, you know, mini tour levels, these guys generally mostly have pretty solid movement patterns, but they don't really understand their patterns and they don't understand their tendencies. So when their stroke gets off, they don't really know how to solve it. 
Right. And the biggest disconnect I've, I've seen when those guys don't putt well or don't make putts, it's because A, their speed control is off, mm-hmm. or B, they're just not reading the greens well. Right. And reading the greens sounds very simple, but it's not. Because when you go from Poana on the West Coast to Bermuda in Florida, man, it's different. It's oh, yeah. totally different. Because you're, you know, the grain, the stems, the speed of the greens, that's all influencing, as you know, how much the ball is going to break. And a lot of guys don't, that don't use something like Aimpoint, who just use their eyes, well, they're just seeing slope. They're just seeing the, the contour and the movement of the ground, but they're not really aware of the friction of that different surface. Mm-hmm. They're not really aware of the grain of that surface. And, and so, therefore, they don't put together the dots. They don't connect the dots fast enough to make that adjustment from, from a green reading perspective. And then all of a sudden they start tinkering with their stroke. Right. They go immediately like, well, to their putts. I'm not making putts right now. I'm missing everything high. So I must be pushing the ball. Right. <laughs> so, but yet they sit here on a putting mirror and hit a, for two hours, hit putts through a gate as tight as, you know, right. you can imagine. I'm like, you're not pushing putts, buddy. Right. You, right. You're rolling this thing right through this gate here. And that's part of our job, isn't it, to get players to to not scratch the wrong itch, as I say. You know, you're scratching the wrong itch here. You know, yeah. Uh, and that's that's a part of the process is to to have good uh, feedback when they're practicing because that's that's true. Golfers will walk off of a green having just missed a ten foot birdie putt, and they're just immediately convinced that, hey, I I, I pushed it, man. I know I did. And and you say, well, that thing was breaking right to left about seven inches you pushed it but that thing was uh four feet past the hole let's talk about speed (laughs) yeah yeah you want to talk about line let's talk about that four foot past the hole uh speed you just created on that 10 footer you know it's a a compatibility issue sometimes isn't it well that's that's fascinating stuff because i'm a believer as well that there is no perfection and and that's a a topic i get a lot you know golfers come to us and they say man i'm just i want to be more consistent and that is the question we're often, you know, presented with. How do I, you know, gain consistency? And I think there's a, a range that we need to bring golfers into. I mean, if you're looking at numbers on track, man, you're going to see your best players put that club face in a particular place. It's not going to be that exact number on every shot they hit when they're standing there hitting golf balls. There's a tolerance that that club face is going to be within. Would you say it's – one degree either side of their intended club face on their best ball striking days. Yeah. With all my, that's one of the things that I look at with my, my tour players is when they tell me the ball flight pattern that they're trying to achieve, whether it's a draw or a fade or relatively straight. One of the things I assess is the consistency of the club face because those patterns are going to cause um, variance in those club face deliveries. And so some guys think they play better hitting a draw and I let them do that on track, man. And I'm like, okay, here's your face. It's plus or minus two degrees. And I'm like, okay, hit me five or six, 10 fades in a row. And they'll hit 10 fades in a row. And I'm like, well, when you hit a fade, your club face is plus or minus a half a degree. When you hit a draw, it's plus or minus two degrees. So which one of these do you think is going to give you a more predictable ball flight? Right. Right. So it's just, sometimes it's just making them aware of what they do. But yeah, to answer your question, my players are all controlling that club face plus or minus about a degree. Right. That's what it takes to play at the level that they play. And if you look at the recreational golfer, they probably would change the face 
five or six degrees in either direction of their intended club face. And it's because they're working that club face so much. They're working their hands or rotating that grip, putting force on that that rotational force around that handle, and they have no control of that club face because they're avoiding, I don't want to hit that next shot to the right. I want to hit it, you know, I don't want to hit it. Hit it way over there to the right, and so the next one goes, you know, forty yards left. Well, hey, yeah. <laughs> Put, there's no, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> so yeah, getting that club face under some sort of consistent pattern is the key to better golf for sure for all players. Well, that's, I agree. That's a couple of things that I wanted to, to you know, kind of put out there is that how players are going to get more consistency, and is there a possibility that we can be perfect in in our golf swing? And one of the things that I'll present to people is. Hey, listen, can you sign your name 10 times on this piece of paper for me and make them all look exactly the same? Yeah. And of course they can't do that. And I say, well, you're talking about taking a very lightweight object like a ballpoint pen and not using every muscle in your body to sign your name. And you can't do that. So you think you can take a one pound object like a golf club, swing it at 115 <laughs> miles an hour, and you're going to do it exactly the same every time? I just don't think that's something that's humanly possible. But if they yeah. set their expectations on being perfect, you know, what are we dealing with then? You know, I understand. Yes, that's Fr- a great point. Frustrated golfers, you know, they, their expectations <laughs> are pretty darn high. Um, you know, so we have to understand, I think, as as coaches, is how to help players um, raise their golf IQ a little bit, give them a little bit of face to path relationship understanding, give them a little bit of low point control understanding. And I think if I wrote a golf book today, it'd be two chapters. It'd probably be face-to-path relationship in chapter two and low point control in chapter one. And we'd help a lot of golfers, wouldn't we? Yeah, there's no question about it. I think if you threw one more chapter in there, how to hit it far, Mm -hmm. you know, know, because most golfers by definition, as they make an early entry into the game, they don't learn how to swing fast because they're, they're insecure of where the golf ball is going to go. Right. So they, they play this, kind of dialed back um, dialed back game of, well, okay, I'm going to swing slower. I'm going to resist movement. I'm going to restrict rotation. I'm going to keep the club in front of me. <laughs> it's like this domino effect of I can now hit it straighter because I'm doing all of these things. Yeah, I'm swinging smooth. In reality, <laughs> that's, that's not how the forces and torques work. Right. And so you can understand – when you can get them to understand – listen, I want you to swing hard. I want you to move dynamically. I want you to be fast because your competitive edge relies upon the fact that the farther you can hit this golf ball, the lower your score is going to be. That's a fact. And I don't think you need to take a beginning golfer and just barely get them to make contact. I think you need to get a, take a beginning golfer and say, Here, here's how we're going to move. Mm-hmm. We're going to move very fast. We're going to move very dynamically. And the club's going to move this way as a result of how we're moving. And when they start out with speed, at, and I'm talking more like junior golf development now, you know, right. we, we start out kids hitting it hard and far. I, I really firmly believe that if you don't learn to generate force and speed at an early age, you will not have it at an older age. I agree. Period. It's just how, yeah. you know, it's how, it's how, you know, the, the brain in its formative years, like to move fast, you have to think fast. You know, you, 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 you probably can't just kind of stroll out there, be lackadaisical in your life and be kind of sluggish and be fast. You know, it's, it's more of a mindset. It's more of a mentality. You have to train. The brain has to be trained to program and, and program to move, to fire quickly and to, to get the signal to the body to move quickly. And I think it, 
for all young players that I coach, like, like they're talking about making golf courses bigger because they're getting obsolete. They are getting obsolete, mm-hmm. but it's not because of the equipment. It's because of what we're teaching these kids. Like I have 30 golfers in my stable that swing over 120 miles an hour and have over 180 ball speed. Mm-hmm. I have up six or seven that are approaching 190 ball speed. Wow. Now, now I don't just work with weightlifters and like the greatest athletes on the planet. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is these, these mechanical principles that we're teaching and how we're training these kids at an early age is leading to explosive athletes on the golf course. Right. When I grew up, people that were playing were like these country club kids. I called them like I played every sport in high school, football, baseball, basketball, golf. I mean, hell, I even played tennis in high school. But when I was playing golf, there was these country club kids that didn't play any other sports. Like they weren't, they weren't athletic enough to make the football team. Mm-hmm. They weren't athletic enough to make the basketball team. So they just kind of went and played golf. Mm-hmm. And golf is not that way anymore. Right. Golf is now a sport, and, and you're getting the best athletes attracted to it. I mean, look at guys like Brooks Kepka. I mean, he absolutely mashes the golf ball with, with brute strength and force. And that's that's the template of the game at the highest level now. Sure. You know, got, and, and so if you're training players to do that, you're already one, one-upping them from a competitive advantage over their peers right off the bat. If you can teach them to hit it hard and far first, then you can teach them to hit it straighter later. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of industry, uh, concepts and philosophies, if you will, about building speed. What are some of your golden nuggets for players that want to build more club head speed into their swing? Um, I would say number one, uh, freedom and rotation of your body, all things being equal, the longer your swing is, the more you can exert, the longer you can exert force on that handle, the club head sp- is going to accumulate speed. It's just a basic fact, right? If you took a putter and you held it up like a pendulum and you made a backstroke, a little, you know, a short backstroke and you let it fall, the head would accumulate a certain amount of speed. And if you took it back further, it'd accumulate more speed. It's just basic physics. Like, sure. so if I can get a golfer to have freedom and rotation in their body, so that means not resisting with your lower body, not keeping your knees flexed, turning your hips, getting a deep hand path, letting the club head orbit your body. Right there, you're going to gain club head speed. That, so that would be the first nugget that I would give them. The second nugget I would give them is this has more to do with muscle stretch shortening cycles. I would get them to speed up their backswing dramatically. Sure. This is one of the things I'm working with Pier- Scott Piercy on right now, who is very impressive to me because, I mean, this guy's 40 years old and he can stand on a range right now and go to 120. Wow. And there's not many guys on tour that can do that. And so he historically throughout his career has had this kind of slow, lazy kind of move off the ball. And so any speed he would, he would gain in the downswing was just because of he was a good athlete and he could create a lot of rotational force with his body. But now that I, you know, I'm introducing this faster backswing, he's getting to take advantage of a little bit more of that muscular stretch cycle. He's coming out of transition with a lot more torque and a lot more rotational speed. And he's, dude, I I don't think 120 is like his top end. Mm -hmm. I think by the, you know, by the fall, he's going to be, you know, 180 ball speed routinely on the golf course. And, and, And for a guy like that, who I think is the best 
short middle iron player in the world, it, it's, it's, a big, it's a big game changer for him. So instead of him hitting a six iron into a long par four, he's now hitting an eight iron. Right. And when you give him eight irons, he's, he's hard as hell to beat. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know the listeners out there would love to get uh, a little bit more of your instructional offerings, and there's a, an online opportunity for them we want to talk about. And um, just share that with, uh, with our listeners. You guys have assembled a number of you, uh, you and Jeff Pierce and I think a few other guys, Scott Fawcett, have uh, legends in the industry, if you will, have all assembled an online instructional opportunity called Course Kings. Tell us about that and how the, how the listener can get on, on board with that. Yeah, so Course Kings was kind of a, a brainchild of mine, and I thought, like, I've been very, very lucky. I mentioned that a number of times to to be able to be in the right place at the right time, and the advent of social media and the free sharing of information out there. I credit that for really helping me grow as an instructor, and um, it, it only makes sense that if it, if it can help me grow like that as an instructor, it can help players get better a lot faster too. So this sharing of information has become more and more and more readily available and easier for players to, to, to gain access to. And my idea for course Kings was, you know, nobody wants to hear me over and over and over talk about every part of the game. So I wanted to go out and find who I felt were like some of the leaders in the industry in terms of coaching, uh, in terms of critical thinkers, guys who could communicate their messages really, really well and kind of bring them all together and, and create a, a digital coaching platform um, for, for, for people to join as a member, you know, and mm-hmm. basically what course Kings looks like is uh, a, a library of, of not videos, but a library of series. And so, you know, we're not just making one-off videos that are three minutes long and firing up thousands of videos on the site. And you as a, as a consumer have to sit here and kind of, pour through all these videos, you know, it's kind of like if you typed in how to stop slicing on YouTube, mm-hmm. 500 videos would show up, right? But you right. don't know what's good, what's bad, where to start. Well, what we've done is we've created s- series and we've taken specific problems that we're faced with every single day on the lesson tee. We turn the camera on and we film it. Okay. You, you battle early extension. Here is a series where we break down that movement for you. And here's how you go from A to B to, you know, to correct it. Mm-hmm. And so my, my idea was to bring on, you know, valuable teachers that are teaching all different parts of the game. So Jeff Pierce brings a, a wealth of knowledge, of short game and putting. And then I've got another coach, um, Shaheen Nakjavani, who's from Canada, who has got great information. He's a young and upcoming instructor and, and, and he's, he is really good in front of the camera. I love his delivery and how he gets his message across. Um, Scott Fawcett brings, you know, incredible wealth of strategy and knowledge of working with the best players in the world out there, um, helping them navigate some of the toughest courses on tour. And so, you know, I'm adding fitness people. I'm, I'm going to keep layering on different coaches to kind of round out this project to where if you're a player or a coach alike, um, you know, there's going to be a wealth of information on there that's going gonna, gonna to catapult your learning curve in the game. And it's very, very, you know, it's very, very affordable. It's it's $25 a month to be a member. And, you know, I thought to myself, man, if I would have had this 20 years ago, like how much better of a coach would I be right now? Because I'm getting to hear these other coaches. Like 
mm-hmm. one of the things that, that helped me learn the most was when I watched other coaches teach. Sure. And I was like, man, the way he delivered that, the way he thought about that, the way he organized the lesson and structured it was, was incredible. And so we have a lot of that on the site. We just turn the camera on and you're seeing us teach basically live lessons. And I've got golfers ranging from all different skill levels to, you know, a 10 handicap to one of my elite college players to even my PGA tour players are, are on there. So you're getting a yeah. behind the scenes look at, at all the stuff that you mentioned earlier on in this interview. It's all on there. Right. And never have to leave the comfort of your own home. That's, <laughs> that's pretty special. Yeah, I mean, when you're sitting around airports, like I am all the time, just pop open your <laughs> iPhone, start watching some course kings videos. Yeah, it's absolutely. You don't have to be outdoors in Las Vegas at 115 in the summer trying to get, <laughs> get a lesson anymore. You can do it at home. That's fantastic. Well, I hope the listeners will take, uh, take heed and, and connect with you, uh, through course kings or any other particular ways you like, uh, the listener to be able to reach out to you and connect with you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm most readily available on social media. So Instagram is, is where you'll find me spend a lot of time. And my uh, Instagram handle is at Radar Golf Pro. And it's the same uh, tag, you know, same handle on Twitter. So um, I, I do a lot of um, posting on Instagram. I've built a pretty big following on there. And I've got a really engaging audience of, uh, of followers on there. So I'll, I'll, I'll spend a lot of time on there. Um, Twitter, not so much these days. It's, it's a little hard to go back and forth, back and forth and time yeah. consuming on there, but I, I still do post some as well there, but you could reach me at either of those, or you could just send me an email, uh, directly at Jeff Smith at course Fantastic. Well, Jeff, I know you've got a lot on your plate here in the next few weeks. You'll be going out to the U S open, I assume in Pebble beach with your players and Best of luck oh, yeah. to them in, in the future events this year. Um, I hope to run across you again. I know we've bumped into each other at different teacher functions and maybe even in the fairways at Augusta one spring. I remember seeing you there. And I, always yeah. love, I always love spending time with you, man. You're really down to earth. And the players that work with you are blessed to have you as a coach and, and a leader. And uh, we appreciate what you've done for the industry by sharing your information and helping us all be better at what we do. So thanks, hey, thanks again. Thanks, Alan. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, your friendship to me has been meant a lot over the years. Well, thank you, sir. And I look forward to seeing you down the road, my friend. That's it for uh, our episode today. That's Jeff Smith from TPC Summerlin in Las Vegas, Nevada, PJ Tour coach to so many great players, as you heard. And I hope you'll reach out to him and make contact with his course kings uh, through the, the magic of Internet. You can get golf instruction there, top-notch information and can't be beat, so uh, do so. Reach out to Jeff Smith through all those social media connections. Thanks again for being with us, Jeff. We'll see you soon, buddy. Thanks for having me. All right, that's our show. Uh, Again, I'm your host, Alan Burton. It's been The Forecast. It's been my pleasure to be with you. I want to thank our guest, Mr. Jeff Smith, for being on, and reach out. If you'd like to email me with any comments or feedback, I'm at alan at alanburtongolf.com. You can also connect with me on all social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I look forward to next time. Thanks so much, listeners. Stay in touch and stay in the fairway.
You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.